The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're exploring the ways that science and technology are changing sports on and off the playing field. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Mark McCluskey. He's head of operations at Wired.com. He was the founding editor of Playbook, Wired's sports technology blog, and was previously the editor of Wired.com, a reporter and editor at Sports Illustrated and Sports Illustrated for Kids. He was also a member of the Cutting Edge Baseball Analytics Collective, Baseball Prospectus, and was a contributor to several of its best-selling books. He's here today to talk about his New York Times bestselling book, Faster, Higher, Stronger, how sports science is creating a new generation of super athletes and what we can learn from them. Mark, welcome. Thanks for having me. So uh, sports science is a fascinating field that we don't hear much about. And I assume that's because some of the most advanced research is probably kept in-house to try and give their athletes an edge. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's in a lot of scientific endeavors, you know, you, you do your research, you publish your papers, and then the information Information's out into the world, and obviously in sports science, so much of it is a potential competitive advantage that there's there's real pressure on organizations not to reveal what they're doing because um, then the competition can see it. You know, the flip side is that eventually you do have to go out and play the games, and you do have to bring the equipment out, and so you can start to see some of these things. There's a there's a little bit of tension there. It's interesting because I think we should know more about this science. Um, after all, there's a lot here that anyone who exercises or who plays sports regularly would find useful as sort of life hacks. And when you consider all the products marketed to athletes at all levels, um, thinking gear, supplements, nutrition, um, and a lot of that marketing makes a lot of claims, some of it backed by science and some of it maybe not. Maybe not, indeed. Yeah, it's really, I mean, to me, I think that was one of the most rewarding things about working on this book is is not just getting to see these amazing things that happen at the elite level, but then really trying to make those connections back to regular athletes. You know, what can more normal human beings take from this very rarefied world and, and bring back to either their own athletic lives or even their lives outside of being an athlete. I think there are lessons to be learned. In this book, you argue that we've made massive athletic improvements in the last century, but also that recently things haven't been improving as quickly. Um, records aren't being broken as often. Are we maybe reaching the limit of what the human body is capable of? I mean, I think anytime you bet against continued human progress, you end up being wrong. So it's, uh, I, I wouldn't take that bet. I, I would say, you know, so if you're a mathematician at all, right, you just sort of plot the world records and, and the pace of improvement. And that curve is definitely flattening out. Does that mean that we are reaching a limit? You know, a mathematician sees a flattening curve and says you're reaching a limit. That's sort of the definition of it. I, I think that where we stand sort of as, as a culture and as, as sort of a sporting culture is we figured out a lot of the easy stuff. And, and not that it's easy, but, but the past hundred years have really been a tremendous amount of learning of how the body responds to exercise, um, what sort of nutrition does and doesn't work and does and doesn't work for which sort of athlete or person. The next frontier is not just what works, but why. Like we know certain things are effective. We don't know some of the reasons why they're effective. And that's a really interesting problem to solve. And then I think the next set of problems to solve is 
at the very individualized level. You know, what works for me training-wise, what works for me nutritionally, what works for me in terms of matching me as an athlete to a sport will be totally different than for you or for our friend Bill or for, you know, a kid in London who, you know, maybe would be a, a tremendous you know, American football player, but isn't exposed to the sport. And so has no opportunity to show that it's, it, I think that those connections start to be the next frontier here. What else is really interesting is that it was really clear from reading your book, how much different people can be adapted to different sports and how different body types lend themselves to different sports and different types of abilities. Um, and you mentioned in your book that this diversity and sort of morphology of different athletes is actually a fairly recent thing. Yeah, it's, you know, there have been some really great researchers in Australia who've written a lot about this. And they, and they, you know, if you go back to the 20s and 30s and look at Olympic athletes, there is much less diversity in the sorts of bodies that you saw in those athletes. Like the male athletes tended to be, you know, 5'10 to 6'2 and in the like 180 to 210 range. Um, it, that was just sort of like what an athlete looked like. You know, now an athlete looks like, you know, taking it to women, you know, somebody like Gabby Douglas, who won the gold medal in London in gymnastics, who's four foot 11 and weighs 88 pounds, to Sylvia Foles, who wins a gold medal in basketball, who's six five and weighs 240. It's th- that diversity of, as you say, body type of morphology really has profound in- impacts on our, phys- our performance in these sports. You know, they're, they're, physical characteristics that are much better matched to some sports than others. You know, I, I really like basketball. I'm six feet tall and not, you know, you can be six feet tall and play in the NBA. You have to be an unbelievably good athlete to be six feet tall and play in the NBA. That was never going to happen for me. So what are some of the ways that elite athletes are hacking their performance? Uh, I'm thinking things that maybe the average Joe wouldn't be able to do or maybe probably isn't worth doing. Well, I would say that, you know, you mentioned sort of supplementation earlier. Um, for most of us, spending a lot of time and energy talking about nutritional supplementation is not probably really worth it. So I grew up as a bike racer, and um, I was okay. I wasn't, you know, a world beater. You know, for me to spend a lot of time taking nutritional supplements to increase my biking performance today as a mediocre masters racer is useless. I should, you know, I, there are much more important things for me to do, like ride more often. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people will tend to get hung up on nutrition and especially supplementation. You know, when you're at the elite level, when you've optimized so many other vectors, finding something, you know, an example, um, beet juice has become a very hot performance supplement for athletes and sort of events from kind of like a minute to like 10 minutes long. So now looking at the other side, what are some ways that elite athletes uh, or some techniques elite athletes use that the average person could probably benefit from? I, I think one of the most important things that we can carry out of the elite athletic world is is a mindset and a way of approaching problems. And that is, you know, because elite athletes have, have pushed so far, there aren't a lot of big changes for them to make. And and Dave Brailsford, who ran the British Cycling Program for years, um, talks about something that he calls performance through the aggregation of marginal gains. And the idea there isn't like finding one thing that will make you 10% faster, or even at the elite level, one thing that will make you 1% faster. It's let's find 
10 things that make you a tenth of percent faster. Let's find a hundred things that might make you a hundredth of percent faster. And that if you can just get a little bit better at each thing you're due at each part of your performance, that those gains really start to add up, that it sort of accrues like interest. You know, when I take that into my life and, and the people around me, I think human beings are endlessly, A, fascinated by novelty. We don't focus on the things we already know work. And, and B, we are looking for big sort of quick fixes. I think you see that a lot in dietary advice. Oh, if I just stop doing X, then I'll be healthy. If I start doing Y, I'll be healthy. I, I think the mindset of like, no, it's both harder and easier than that. It's harder because you have to work at it, but it's easier because like, actually, if you just get a little bit better at everything, that starts to be real change in your life. And to me, that's a, a very powerful idea, a very powerful framework through which to view your world. This is Science for the People, and I'm here with Mark McCleskey, head of operations at Wired.com and the author of the new New York Times bestselling book, Faster, Higher, Stronger, How Sports Science is Creating a New Generation of Super Athletes and What We Can Learn from Them. How much of our athletic ability comes from our genetics, or do we actually know that yet? So we don't know uh, a specific percentage. I mean, in some ways, everything comes from our genetics, right? Who who we are is inexorably influenced by our genetics. It's also influenced by our environment, how we grow up, how we train, what we're exposed to, our economic circumstances, everything around. You know, nature, nature versus nurture is one of those canonical scientific debates. And, and it's no different in the sporting world, especially... You know, after, you know, things like Malcolm Gladwell uh, writing about the 10,000 hours rule and how that applies to sports or doesn't apply to sports. It's, you know, the the easy answer here is, is, you know, is it talent or training? Is it nature or nurture? And the answer is both, of course. And we actually all know that intuitively, but it's maybe not a little bit... Um, it's not as compelling a, a story as to say, like, oh, you need 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to be expert. And you can be an expert at anything. You know, the, the strict sort of practice realm, the strict sort of 10,000 hours realm would say that that practice is, is both necessary and sufficient for elite performance. And, and that's not true, certainly, in the sports world. There are plenty of athletes who perform at the very highest level with far less than 10,000 hours or 10 years of deliberate practice. And there are plenty of people who never reach the highest level, even though they spend much more time than that trying to get there. You know, genetics, you know, we talked about morphology. That's obviously genetically, highly genetically influenced. It's got some environmental influences. But, you know, if if I'm 5'5", five, five, I'm not going to play in the NBA. If I'm 7 foot tall, I'm not going to be a gymnast. It does seem like genetics, just in a very obvious way, does have a lot of pull in certain types of sports and in certain types of athletics. And of course, one of the genetic determiners of your athletic ability is the one we don't think about that often, but we see divide groups of athletes all the time. I'm thinking of gender. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, right? We This statement is slightly simplified. I mean, biological sex is completely genetically determined. It's not always completely expressed the same way. You know, there there are in, intersex and intergendered people who who have things that happen. But you, you have X Y chromosome or X two X chromosomes. That's you have that, and we divide competitors along those lines without much thought. Sometimes there are, there are cases that challenge those easy divisions. Like there was a South African runner who who is intersex who who does have. 
a higher level of testosterone, but is morphologically female, but in some ways biologically male, and has competed as a woman and has won world championships. But, you know, those are cases that really challenge our entire notion of what sex and gender actually are, which is an interesting thing for sports to do. Con- contrast that with race. If, if I were to suggest to you in this interview that we should have a world championship for athletes of African heritage and a world championship for Caucasian athletes, most of us would find that offensive. And, and it's, a, it's an interesting way to remember that we get very comfortable with some lines and are very uncomfortable with others and, and need to sort of examine the thinking behind both of them. In some cases, and I'm thinking again of the South African uh, runner, we hear that people get tested or that there's controversies because some of these people might have, and I'm using air quotes, unfair advantages. But are these really unfair advantages? I guess someone just won the genetic lottery in that particular case. In that case, well, I mean, and, and that's a, that's an extreme case, right? I, but my grandfather always said life isn't fair. And it, um, you know, if you be, want to go sort of to the absurd level on this argument, if if every competition was perfectly fair, nobody would ever win, right? It would be a tie for first place, and we'd all get participation medals and, and be fine with that. Some people do win the genetic lottery. Some, you know, some athletes have the ability to process more oxygen than others, just on the day they were born. Some train really hard to express that ability even more so. Some have a lower inherent ability and express it you know richard lewinton who's the biologist and geneticist has this great metaphor for it which is genes are the size of the bucket the the potential and environment is how high you fill that bucket so you know you might have a bigger bucket than me you might have more potential but if you don't work to express it you know my smaller bucket i might be able to fill higher and and still beat you in, in, in a setting like that I've heard that women athletes in terms of breaking records um, are actually currently improving faster than men. Is that true? That was the case for a while, uh, especially through the 70s and 80s. And, and really what you can point to is the, the massively increased participation of female athletes in sports during that time. Thing, things like Title IX in college athletics really, really expanded the opportunities for female athletes in the United States and, and abroad because our intercollegiate system draws so many athletes from around the world. Um, the percentage of athletes in the Olympics, the, the male-female ratio, became much closer to one-to-one. And so there's there's just much more opportunity for female athletes. And, and as you, as you sort of bring a bigger population to bear on an event, you, you're going to get increased performance. You, you have a better chance of finding the best possible performers. That rate has really sort of normalized. Female world records are not outpacing, the improvement in female world records are no longer outpacing the improvement in male world records. Are there sports where the gap between male and female competitors is quite small versus other uh, sporting events where they're larger? The general rule, and, and this is a very general rule, is the in endurance sports, the longer the event, the, the closer the gap. And in some ultra-endurance running events, running events that are 100 miles, 150 miles, women have actually won those races against male competitors at a very high level. You know, strength sports, those gaps are pretty profound. I mean, just the difference in our biology and the difference in testosterone, you know, those anabolic agents. That's why steroids were so particularly effective for female athletes in the 70s because there's there's so much 
they, they don't have the testosterone in their bodies, and so you're able to really radically increase strength through the through that treatment. You know, those sports, you're never going to see the gap close to the same extent. Um, things like the 800-meter and the 1,500-meter swimming events um, have the smallest gaps in swimming. Longer track events have smaller gaps. You're listening to Science for the People, and today we're talking about science, sports, and elite athletics with Mark McCluskey, head of operations at Wired.com and author of the New York Times bestselling book, Faster, Higher, Stronger, how sports science is creating a new generation of super athletes and what we can learn from them. One of the things you talk about in the book is on the road to becoming an elite athlete, whether it's better for someone to focus in on one sport early or whether it's better to branch out more when you're younger and focus in later. Can you talk a little bit about what you found there? Sure. I mean, broadly, more athletes make it to the elite level through what's called late specialization, that they play a lot of sports growing up, that they sample a lot of things, that they try different sports. And, and that's a huge thing. You know, again, I'm a real believer that the very best athletic performances are the result of great genetic ability, great effort, and, and great sort of match between an athlete and their sport. You know, so flip it the other way. Think about early specialization. I have a, you know, if I had a 10-year-old boy and I decided he's going to play baseball. Baseball is a sport that's all he's ever going to play. You know, maybe he'd be a great soccer player, but he'd never have a chance to know that. He'd never have a chance to even know if he liked playing soccer. So it's not that early specialization can't be a path to elite performance. And, you know, everybody will point to, oh, Tiger Woods started, you know, playing golf when he was two. And, you know, there are lots and lots of stories that we all sort of know on, like, kids who got very focused very early on a sport and played it to the exclusion of everything else and, and were successful. And, yeah, it certainly works. But, but you can do the research and look at, at the broader population of elite athletes, and it's the data is very clear that it's a, it's a more prevalent path to have a broad athletic experience as a kid than a very focused one. Is there any idea of why that is? There are several. I mean, there are several factors that I would point to. One is, if you hate playing a sport, you will not succeed. <laughs> and, you know, Andre Agassi, if, if you've ever read his autobiography, it's it's a spectacular book. And he spends a lot of the book talking about how much he hated tennis. And he hated tennis because his father was an incredibly demanding person who, from a very young age, demanded that Agassi play tennis all day, every day, and really do everything he could to be a great tennis player. You know, it worked. He was able to push through that somehow. And, and frankly, I don't know how, because most kids, when confronted with that situation, will just stop playing. And, and let's remember... Statistically speaking, anybody listening to this, your kid is not going to be an elite athlete, right? Obviously, somebody becomes an elite athlete, but statistically, it's an incredibly small proportion of the population, like an, a, a vanishingly small proportion. And so, to to be sort of approaching this, let's say, as a parent, thinking like, "Oh, I'm going to I'm going to raise an elite athlete, and I'm going to go through these steps to do it." you're almost certainly not going to. And what you are much massively more likely to do is like create a kid who hates sports or who hates a particular sport that you push him or her into. So that's one factor, like burnout. The other factor, as I said, is, is not just that match of sampling different sports, but also you do have generalized athletic abilities that you develop across the different sports. You know, Steve Nash, the, the great 
point guard, grew up playing soccer. And he really credits having played soccer with giving him the unbelievable court vision that he had as an NBA player. You know, he, he saw things differently than other point guards had. He, he changed the position. And, and if you ask him about it, part of what he will tell you is he saw it differently because of the decade he had spent playing soccer as a kid. He just thought about space differently than basketball players typically do. Being able to transfer those abilities from one sport to another is a fascinating thing. Does someone's performance as a young athlete tell us ultimately how they'll perform as an adult? Not as much as you would think. You know, a lot of the people who I talk to in my book are people who want, run places like the Australian Institute of Sport or the U.S. Olympic Committee Developmental Programs or UK Sport in, in Great Britain, where they're trying to identify and work with people who have the potential to win Olympic gold medals. You know, there there were some interesting studies done that, uh, between, like, let's look at every every runner who competed in the finals of a junior world track and field championship. And let's see if they made it to an Olympic final. And something on the order of like 25% did, which is a lot. So in one way, that's an incredibly good predictor, right? Like having an instrument that tells me that 25% of these people will make it to the Olympics, that's a great predictor. I guess I'm more interested in the 75% who didn't. The people who who were not great junior competitors who become great senior competitors, and and, the, and there is some research that suggests that the very best senior competitors tend to mature later, and tend to have not had great junior careers. It's interesting. Uh, one of the things that I found most surprising in uh, in your book was how some of the Olympic committees from around the world uh, actually try and recruit people into sports where they're not winning very many medals and actually turn around some medal winning performances in only a couple of years. I, I love this. So one of the sort of case studies that I talk about in my book is, is a woman named Helen Glover who um, won a gold medal in London in rowing. So she first rode in a boat about two and a half years before the Olympics, which, you know, is kind of crazy, but awesome, too. So what UK Sport did in the run-up to the London Olympics, they, they launched a program, and I love the name of this. They called it Sporting Giants. Basically, they, they put out a call for athletes. They said, if you are 5'10 or over and a woman, or 6'3 and over and a man, and have been a, a, a competitive athlete at sort of the county level, which, you know, is kind of like the state level here in the U.S. We'd like to talk to you. And they got about a 1,000 athletes responded to this. And, and what they were looking for, there are a couple of sports where tall is really important, and rowing is one of them. It's a physics problem, basically. Row, rowing coaches talk about tall people as having long levers because you're, you're pulling the oar, and the taller you are, the longer lever you are in comparison to the oar and the, the faster the faster you can move it or the more you know you can move it further per per stroke so helen had been a field hockey player and had played at sort of the the county and a little bit higher level she'd never been an international field hockey player and she went and she signed up for this program and she went and did some physiological testing and they found out that she was an incredible aerobic athlete as well and they started training her as a rower and you know, two and a half years later, she was listening to God Save the Queen on the top of the medal stand. It's a, it's a testament to some, some very clever thinking and recruiting by the UK sport people, which is to do what's called talent transfer, to take athletes who might not be having 
super elite success in one sport and find ways to move them into a sport where they might have more success. So from the standpoint of cutting edge sports science, what are some examples of stuff that's right out there on the edge of what's possible? To me, some of the real frontiers, as I said, are in personalization, not just let me design a a nutritional program for you based on the sport and based on your caloric requirements. But let me be doing blood testing all the way through. Let me be looking at the levels of various micronutrients, you know, things like vitamin D, things like creatine, which can can be a marker of um, muscular damage, things like your testosterone levels. Let, let me do everything I can to find a way to support you nutritionally That that is really at an individualized level. It's really hard to do. One person in nutrition basically said, you know, we're 20 years behind a lot of exercise physiology. We're still figuring out some of these mechanisms. We're still figuring out some of these energy cycles and how to really affect them with nutrition. So to me, that's one. Um, another one for me is really going very, very deep in the data of your performances, of your training and your performances, and, and looking for, as I said, those really marginal gains. You know, if I train in the morning rather than the afternoon. Do I get a better adaptation eventually if I train in longer bursts or shorter bursts? You know, it's it's a constant science experiment at this level. It's a constant feedback loop. But our ability to capture so much more data than we had in the past and then be able to analyze these, you know, oceans of numbers to to come up with real insights that are you can act upon, I think is a fascinating thing. I really like the idea of elite sports being a sort of science experiment you can do on yourself. That's a really interesting idea. Yeah, you know, it's in the book I talk about n equals one. You know, for the scientists in the crowd, n's the population, and 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 usually you do a study, you try to get as many people. You know, elite athletes are rare. They aren't a usual population, and each one is a little bit like a snowflake, right? Each one. Is, is pushed very, very far towards the limits of their ability, has, has not a lot of easy gains. But, you know, if you can, if you can get into that, that experimental mindset, which is hard because you're asking an athlete to question things that have gotten them to a very high level. So it's, a, it's a real balancing act. It's a real balancing act between the scientist and the coach and the athlete. You know, the scientist might have 50 things they want to try, you know, First, you've got to translate that through the coach. Can you even make the coach understand that? Can you? What's the risk reward for each of those? You know, because you know you have to be a little bit. You know, first do no harm about it. You can't cause someone to regress. That's a problem. And then you know, how do you how do you break a lifetime of training and habits to actually implement those things with the athlete? It's it's a very ticklish process. You're tuned into Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders, and I'm here today with Mark McCluskey, operations manager at Wired.com and author of the New York Times bestselling book, Faster, Higher, Stronger. So in this sort of cutting edge science uh, for sports, I feel like there's this gray zone where some of it's cutting edge and some of it is maybe in the murky territory of being cheating. And I use air quotes because it's really hard to say in especially elite sports, what is cheating and what isn't and what is in the rules performance enhancements and what's kind of out of bounds? It's an interesting problem. A, a, a quick example. So more red blood cells are incredibly useful for an endurance athlete. You can deliver more oxygen 
to the muscle, you can continue your effort for a longer period of time. So one way to have more red blood cells is to live and train at altitude, which people have been doing that really came into vogue in the 60s and 70s. You know, you, there's less oxygen in the air and your body adapts by creating more red blood cells and you go to sea level and, and you have more red blood cells. That's great. We're all comfortable with that, right? That doesn't seem like cheating to most of us. So take it a step further. What if I want to live here at sea level, but sleep at altitude? And so I can build a tent in my house that basically sucks, you know, it's called a hypoxic chamber. It creates a a lower oxygen uh, environment for me to sleep in. So is that cool? Well, they're not banned. There's been some conversations about them being banned and are, is this basically technological doping? Okay, so let's set that aside. Then there's blood doping. Like what if I take blood out of my body, spin out the red blood cells, and then inject it back into my body before a competition? That's banned. It's got net-net some of the same effects. It might be a different amount of that effect. You know, what if I take your blood and put the red blood cells in my body? That's, I think people are even more uncomfortable with that. And then what if I take a drug like EPO that does the same? All of those things increase the number of red blood cells in my body. Some of them we're comfortable with and some of them we're not. To me, the lines, you know, as you said, it's a really hard thing to figure out where the lines are. I think a couple of things stand out for me. One is I think people tend to get really uncomfortable with things that they feel like distort what the competition is supposed to measure in their mind. So when there was this boom in swimsuit technology um, around the, the Beijing Olympics and these super swimsuits and every swimming record was destroyed. And then they, and a lot of people like, Oh, it's just the swimsuit. And it felt like suddenly the competition was like who had the best suit and not who was the best swimmer. And they were banned because of that. Contrast that with Formula One, which is a competition where we're very happy with like technology being the, in some ways the main vector along which the sport is fought. You know, the drivers are incredible athletes and super important, but like the best driver in the world in a terrible car will never win a race. So it's those moments where it feels like the competition has been sort of subverted or changed, I think is where people get most uncomfortable. There tends to be kind of a sliding scale, I think, just looking at the sports and what's considered to be uh, improper performance enhancement versus, you know, within the bounds. Where technology is kind of integral to the sport being done, I'm thinking in things like cycling, technology kind of gets a pass a little bit, or it's a little bit more loose around the rules. Whereas swimming, where technology isn't really integral to the sport of just someone swimming in a pool, I feel like technology is sort of frowned upon a little bit more. I mean, I think that's true. You know, cycling is obviously, as I said, sort of near and dear to me because it was my sport. There are rules around equipment in cycling that are sort of, you know, a cycling frame has to have that sort of double diamond shape, according to the rules. Um, it has to be a certain weight. I mean, there, there are rules that really stifle innovation. You know, it, it, it makes cycling a little more akin to stock car racing than Formula One in some ways. You know, stock cars, the part of the idea is that there's less to futz with in the car. Um, I think people would be perfectly happy to watch bike races that, that push the technological envelope further. I think what the international cycling governing bodies have, have done is tried to standardize a little bit to, to keep that balance where they think it should be. 
There's also, of course, safety concerns in some sports where technology restrictions are put in place to protect the athletes as much as they are to protect a kind of fairness. I'm thinking um, the story you told in your book about downhill skiing. Yeah, so in in downhill skiing, they they changed the rules for how aggressive the shape of the ski could be. So the more aggressive the side cut, the curvature on the ski, the faster that ski turns. And the international governing body changed those rules to basically make the skis harder to turn in some ways. The idea behind that was to try and protect the knees of the athletes. They thought that if they could lower the turning radius, that they would reduce the stress on the athlete's knees and and make it a safer sport. There's some real questions on whether or not that's true. What there isn't a question about is, for some skiers, that was an amazing thing because the new skis really suited their style. And for some skiers, it was a disaster because the new skis completely didn't suit their style. So Ted Ligeti, the American skier who just um, won another world championship and won gold in Sochi in the giant slalom, uh, you know, became the dominant giant slalom skier of his generation, certainly, and maybe of any generation after this ski change. The irony is he was incredibly vocal in how much he hated the new skis and the ski change, but they perfectly meshed with how he skis. He tends to initiate his turns much higher on the hill and carve them longer, and and so it was great for him. But it's funny talking to him about it. He he recognizes, yeah, like this has worked out great for me, but I really hate skiing on these skis sometimes. A friend of mine and I were joking around, and I was telling him about this book. Um, he mentioned that as a sort of thought experiment, it would be interesting to have an Olympic-like sporting event where drugs were allowed and uh, technology, all technologies were allowed rather than banned, just to kind of see what the human body can do at the greatest extremes. Now, that's a hypothetical, and probably there are some health and ethical concerns with that. But do you think we'll ever see a split in sports where on one side we have the clean people, just the sort of raw human body, where in the other other arena we might have a sort of no-holds barred augmented human sporting, whether it be technology or drugs? People have certainly suggested, I mean, so there's a classic Saturday Night Live sketch where um, it's the all-drug Olympics and and basically a weightlifter like is trying to heave up this giant set of weights and he rips his arms off. They stayed down with the bar and you know his, his body is so strong he tears itself apart. Um, it's an argument I've made in the past, like just let let's let anybody do anything. I don't think that works in and of itself. And and here's why. I think people tend to think like, oh, that levels the playing field. Except it doesn't. Just like anything else, we have very individual reactions to performance-enhancing drugs. So for some athletes, they see huge benefits, and some they see much less. If I have a higher natural level of testosterone in my body than than a competitor, and then we both take testosterone supplements, like he's going to see a better increase than I do. It, it just changes where that unlevel playing field is. It's about who has the best pharmacology now. Look, hi- historically, human culture has has wrapped its head around gladiatorial spectacle in ways that you know, probably don't reflect super great on us. And so I, I wouldn't say it'll never happen. I, I don't know that ethically and morally we're ever going to get there. I think you even look at what's happening in sports like the NFL and NHL today, around concussions and the real conversations that are being had around that. I think, I think societally we are much more in tune with the toll that these sports take on athletes and their bodies and their lives. And, and so while it seems easier to sort of be like, do whatever you want, it's up to you. It's your decision. You know, I, I think that 
that argument is increasingly difficult to make when we're see when we see the ramifications even of sports that we play now with these rules and what happens to athletes after repeated high speed collisions what happens to them after putting their bodies through the things that they put them through what about when we talk about athletes or people who are disabled in some way but with new technologies that are coming out may end up with prosthetics that maybe give them an edge that a real leg or a real foot doesn't give them. I know there was previously some controversy around some runners who had uh, some prosthetic limbs about whether or not it was fair for them to compete in certain types of competitions. It's going to be a really fascinating frontier. You know, you, 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 mis- you said augmented humans earlier, and that's an interesting way to think of it. I'm going to answer your question in a roundabout way. At, at the end of the book, I'm talking about the limits of performance, and I was down. Um, Red Bull, the energy drink manufacturer, has a huge sports science department and, and program. And I was talking to the guy who runs it. His name's Andy Walsh. He's a very well-known sports scientist. And I said, you all, nobody's ever going to run 100 meters in six seconds. You know, nobody's ever going to run a marathon in 20 minutes. And he looked at me. He's like, well, sure they are. He's like, they might not look anything like we think athletes look today. And that's a really radical notion, and I kind of love it. Uh, but if you look from Neanderthal man to today and, and what's happened in, in that course of time, you know, think of the difference in performance. If you look at even the difference in performance in the 130 so years that we've taken sports seriously, there are huge differences in performance, and you start to project that out. Project that out 500 years. Project that out 1,000 years. Like, What does that look like? It's a really interesting question. Mark, thanks so much for being here. It's a really fascinating book. Thank you. You can learn more about Mark McCluskey and his book, Faster, Higher, Stronger, How Sports Science is Creating a New Generation of Super Athletes and What We Can Learn from Them, at the website mccluskey.com, a link which we'll have available for you in the show notes for this episode on our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. After the break, Desiree digs into the science of supplements with Dr. Brian Chung, founder of the blog Evidence-Based Fitness. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and I'm joined by Dr. Brian Chung to talk about sports supplements. Brian is a plastic surgeon specializing in hand and wrist surgery at the University Health Network in Toronto. A research methodologist by training, his main research interests are the design and reporting of randomized controlled trials, as well as measurement tool development and validation. He blogs at Evidence-Based Fitness, a site that critically examines research topics in fitness and nutrition. Thanks for being here, Brian. Thanks for having me. Now, what is a sports supplement exactly? Is there a proper definition? I think there probably is a proper definition out there. I can't really say that I know it off by heart. I think supplement by definition is something that is, quote unquote, extra, um, that sort of lies outside of regular solid food and drink in a sort of colloquial sense, because I think people consider whey protein to be a supplement, um, even though it's technically a food, right? Um, so I generally take a more 
practical definition of supplement um, versus maybe the official definition, which I would have to go look up. I see a lot of words like creatine and beta alanine and glutamine, and those are the things that companies claim will make you bigger, stronger, and faster, for lack of a better word. So let's go through them. What is creatine? Creatine is uh, a substance that is normally found inside your cells. You get it from food. You can eat a large steak and get a fair amount of creatine. It's found in animal protein mostly, but also present in some plants. Its supplement function is basically to draw water into the cell um, and to make the cell larger. How it actually goes about producing the sort of the strength effects. And now there's a lot of other research coming into creatine use, which has to do with mental function, um, particularly in some disease states that we don't really fully understand. So we don't totally get why creatine does its job still. We just know that when it's put to the test um, in terms of a cell volumizer, that it does tend to produce pretty good results in some people. And there are still, there are some people who are creatine non-responders, um, but we do see they're not large effect sizes, but you know they're they're pretty good effect sizes for something that is quite cheap and easy to take, um, and has virtually no side effects and no real adverse effects. What about beta alanine? I would say beta alanine is still pretty controversial. It is one of the precursors to carnosine, which is a substance that's found inside your cells, and. Beta alanine gets together with um, another molecule, the name of which I can't quite remember right now, um, and they get together and they make carnosine inside the cell. And carnosine basically is associated with decreasing fatigue in the muscle cell. So theoretically, if you take beta alanine, you can increase the level of carnosine in your muscle cells and therefore you don't get tired as quickly when you exercise. That's its purpose. Now, I noticed you said theoretically. Yeah. So that's biochemically what should happen. The problem is that when you test it in humans and you say, does this actually make you, say, run faster, longer, you know, are you stronger? When you put it to the test at the doses that people are given, my personal feeling is that the effect size is really small, the hype is definitely greater than the effect that it's attributed to. Um, and how about glutamine? Glutamine is uh, an amino acid. Uh, so also just found in your body. You, you can see where the common sort of theme is with most of these. There are things that you find in your body, right? It's one of the many amino acids that you find in your body. And amino acids are the building blocks of protein. So anytime you have like a steak or even plant protein, they all have amino acids in them. They're all made of amino acids. So glutamine is used medically um, sometimes to prevent muscle wasting. And I think there are some uses of glutamine in terms of uh, people who have like really bad stomatitis, which is like sort of really bad ulceration of the mucous tissues inside your mouth and your upper rest and your upper digestive tract. And so as a sort of extension of that glutamine is touted to have recovery effects in terms of helping you recover faster from training. You don't sound convinced. <laughs> well, again, like it just for a lot of these supplements and a lot of the things that are sold on the market that when you actually delve into the research, you find that the quality of study is usually not very high. 
um, the number of people studied is also usually not very high. And it's hard to find really good concrete evidence to really hang your hat on and say, yeah, this is really worth using. I, w- I would say the only supplements that have really passed that test uh, would be creatine and the use of supplemental protein, which you don't have to, like, you don't have to use whey protein. You could just eat more, but it's sometimes just hard to eat that much protein because it's so much solid food. With all of the other supplements that are out there, there's not really a huge amount of evidence to show that any of them are really that effective um, at doing what they say they're supposed to be doing. Okay, well then let's let's break this down a bit. Do these these kind of sports supplements help athletes? There are supplements where the effect size, like the size of the effect, might benefit a really elite athlete. If you're a sprinter, like the 100 meter sprinter and you want to win a gold medal at the Olympics, you have to do 100 meters in less than 10 seconds, and it's encroaching on the nine-second limit. And so if you took something that improved your sprint performance by 0.5 seconds, that might make the difference between you getting a gold medal and nothing. If you're just you and me, and my sprint time improves by 0.5 seconds... That's the difference between nothing and nothing. Um, it doesn't gain. It doesn't, doesn't give me any gain of anything unless unless we're running away from bears and that zero point five seconds is what makes me the faster person, right? When when we say does this make a difference for athletes, it, it really depends on what the scope of the effect needs to be and whether that scope of effect can be achieved by that supplement. That being said, I am not entirely certain that there are any supplements that would help an elite athlete go between gold and not gold, right? But I think that's the level at which things need to be discussed. And that's the level at which you also need to look when you're, when you're looking at these studies, it's also looking at, well, sure, they studied a bunch of college athletes to look at this supplement. Who's taking this supplement? It's like, People who are in their 30s, late 20s, who aren't even doing this sport. They're in the weight room lifting weights. And this exactly. study is looking at lifting weights. So is it effective has most to, mostly to do with who are we talking about and what are they doing and what is that effect? Right. So a lot of weightlifters are taking beta alanine, but there's no evidence to show that it actually lets you lift longer in weightlifting. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Dr. Brian Chung about sports supplements. How about those people that that are working out sort of three to four days a week? They are not doing intense bodybuilding. Is there any reason for them to use sports supplements? Yeah, there are. Again, depending on how you classify supplement. So if we think of whey protein as a supplement, I'll, I'll just put it there because that's how most people buy it. They don't really, I mean, some of the grocery stores are starting to sell protein, but for the most part, you go to a supplement store to buy protein. So yeah, I think there there is a role for that. Again, depending on what the effect it is that you're looking for and where you're trying to go with your training, um, if you even have a goal or if you're just going for fun and just sort of to maintain what you have. And it also depends on whether or not you are achieving what you want to be achieving and whether you have everything else kind of in check. So if you're going to the gym three to four days a week and you're just trying to lose some weight and you your calories are under control and you think you would benefit from having a little bit of extra protein, then 
then there probably is a role for taking a protein supplement because it's an easy thing to take and you don't have to sit down and have a steak to have that amount of protein in, in your diet or you don't have to have a chicken breast, which, you know, is not an insubstantial amount of food for some people. So having the luxury of being able to just chug that back and have that protein and know that you sort of have that dose roughly of protein is, is of benefit for some people. Well, how much protein uh, do you actually need to, to help oh. your body at three to four times a week? Uh, so that, the question has, I think, has yet to be answered. Uh, three to four times a week, like, if you're just sort of trying to stay in shape as opposed to achieve, you know, some sort of a large fit, like not large, but you're trying to achieve a, a higher fitness goal in terms of pushing your body towards something that it doesn't just sort of naturally stay at, right. uh, then, you know, protein requirements roughly fall in the sort of one gram per kilogram of body weight per day. So... You know, you don't need a lot and you might not even need a protein supplement to hit that. And even that's on a little bit of the high side, like that's still, you know, this kind of for a quote unquote athletic population. And, I, you know, if, I think if you're working out three to four days a week, you probably sort of fall loosely into the athletic population. The bar's not very high. <laughs> Thankfully. So how would supplements affect you if you're not doing any exercise at all then? A protein supplement, for example. Then you're just drinking calories that still go towards you're just drinking protein that still counts towards your calorie count for the day and most protein shakes are not that great tasting that you would prefer them over something else right so what if you're a vegan for example and you know you're not getting enough protein in your own diet if you're not getting enough protein then you're not hitting baseline levels and so then using a protein supplement might be helpful because there are vegan proteins out there that are able to do that and so that that could be helpful. Um, I mean, I think if you're a vegan and you're not getting enough protein from your food sources as a baseline protein, like you're actually becoming protein deficient, then I think you probably need to examine your own vegan habits. Like you should be able to meet, you know, even the, the like the Health Canada reported protein requirements on your food. Well, I I don't use supplements, but I know an absolutely ridiculous amount of people who do use supplements. So uh, I crowdsourced some specific questions uh, about specifically protein supplement use. So for maximum impact, should you take the supplements before or after exercise? That also depends on the supplement. By and large, because I don't think other than the two supplements that I've already mentioned that the other supplements that are really worth taking at all, then for the most part, most supplements, it doesn't really matter when you take them. The ones that are designed to help you increase workload uh, in your workout obviously need to be taken before. And I don't know that there are any that you must take after. So there's not really, you know, there are some studies looking at protein timing. Like, do you take it before, during, or after your workout? How long after your workout? And that sort of thing. But most of the researchers that I would talk to and I'm going to make a wild stab at whether they would agree with me or not is that the effect of timing is far less than it's given credit for. There isn't if there probably is an effect, but to have to obsess about that timing is not necessarily going to give you the benefit that you think it's going to give you. 
Um, now, <laughs> this is a very specific question. What is the best supplement for a skinny guy to get bigger if he's lifting weights and doing cardio three times a week? That's a very complicated question. So skinny guy who's lifting weights and doing cardio three times a week, there are some trainers uh, and some schools of thought that would say if that if you're trying to gain mass, that uh, doing concurrent cardiovascular workouts is maybe not to your in your best interest because you're expending energy that could be used uh, towards accumulating more tissue. And therefore, you you still have to make up that stuff that you're burning away. And so this idea that you can lift weights to build muscle and then do cardio to lose fat, uh, it still comes out of the same energy pool. And so if you're still coming out at the end of the day as being negative in your calories or substantially negative in your calories, um, that you're probably not going to make a lot of gains on the gaining side of things because that and the energy to make the new tissue might not be entirely present, even though the training stimulus is there. So if I take that question as it is, then I, I think I still think a protein supplement is going to have the biggest impact because it's going to count towards your calorie pool because you are more active. Your protein requirements may be uh, a little bit higher depending on what your baseline protein intake already is. And so that's sort of, it, it all depends on where this person is with what they're doing and what needs to be changed. And so there's not really a good general answer to that, but I'm just going to say protein to be safe. Is there a law of diminishing returns in play with sports supplements? Uh, can you plateau and then stop seeing results? Can you bottom out on the, the protein scale? Yeah, I think, I think with anything that you do, you're eventually going to outscale it, uh, especially if the administration of that supplement is exactly the same dose, frequency, right. method, uh, all of that. If, if that all stays the same, then yes, you will eventually outclass your supplement, just like with a drug, right? Especially because you're with a supplement, you're generally trying to get better and better and better and better as opposed to a drug where it's sort of we, we're trying to just hit a level and if we hit that level that's what we say is where we're that's that's where we're going so if you're taking a blood thinner we look at your blood clotting and we say okay your blood clotting number needs to be between two and three and so even though it's going to take you know five times the dose to get your blooding your blood clotting number to four we're not interested in getting it there we just want you to be between two and three with supplements it's a little different because People don't necessarily have a stopping point. They don't have a point where they go, that's where I want to be and that's all I want to do. They hit that initial goal and then they want to keep going. So at some point, yes, you're going to outstrip what it is that you're taking. You know, caffeine's a really good example of that. So, you know, because you eventually develop a caffeine tolerance and you need more and more caffeine to get the same effect, right? Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so if you stayed at the same caffeine dose and you were taking it regularly, either for like a cognitive benefit or for a, a, an athletic benefit, uh, then eventually you need more caffeine to have that same benefit, right? And so you do, you do plateau the caffeine. And so that's a perfect example of how a supplement just stops working. So are, are there any long-term negative effects of supplement use? I think there can be. I think some of them are knock-on effects. They're not direct harmful effects of supplement use. So one one way that I can see supplements sort of going wrong is when you start depending on your supplements 
and really investing your effort in into your supplements and making your supplements the mainstay of your efforts uh, as opposed to being what they are, which is supplemental, right? There's the, they're supposed to be extra. They're not supposed to be the main part of everything. And so if you're starting to obsess about how many bottles of everything you have, then I think that is a knock-on effect. That's a knock-on adverse effect of, of supplement use where you start thinking that they become, they're essential to what it is that you're doing. In terms of actual side effects, that those are always possible. I think the the beta alanine tingling thing is one of those things that happens, and people get like tingly legs or a tingly bum, and that's not very pleasant. But I don't know that that's harmful necessarily. Uh, Long term use of most supplements, I'm not aware of any significant long term effects. Although we're not that far into the age of where supplement use has become widespread, so we're not yet in the area where we have seen people who have been on supplements for a really long time. And a lot of supplements that are on the market now haven't even been out for that long. So beta alanine, I think, has only been out since the mid-2000s, so not even 10 years yet. Right, So we don't know what happens when somebody takes beta alanine chronically for 20 years. So the answer is we'll see? Yeah, I think so. I think so. So far, nothing has really come up. There are some case studies uh, with people who have existing, pre-existing diseases or they discover they have pre-existing diseases that have bad effects on supplements. Those, those are really difficult to predict and there's not really a way of knowing who's going to hit, especially if you don't know you, if you have a pre-existing disease, right? So if you didn't know you had some level of kidney failure and uh, supplements Supplement had an adverse event on your kidneys and therefore caused your kidneys to fail even further. That's that's a totally different animal of long-term effect use or even short-term effect use, right? But outside of that population, because that's a really dicey area to wander into, I think, for this interview, outside of that area, I, I haven't been aware of any any adverse events or for long-term chronic use of most supplements, you know, the, and then the other adverse event is basically your pocketbook, right? So you're taking these supplements that don't necessarily have any proven benefit and you're spending money on them. You're spending effort and you're spending energy on them um, for possibly no accruable benefit. Uh, One last thing. Can you tell us about examine.com? Yeah, so I, I'm on the board of advisors for examine.com. It's a, it's an independent website. It makes money primarily off of selling supplement review guides, basically. Uh, it uh, doesn't accept any funding from any other sources that I'm aware of. Um, and it's basically uh, an impartial research uh, review website that is pretty comprehensive in terms of not only the number of supplements that it reviews, so it, it branches out into even areas that most of supplements that most people don't even consider as supplements. And also it's quite comprehensive in terms of its review of the research of the studies that have been done on that particular supplement. So, you know, for your listeners, if they're either taking something that they're not sure that they should be taking or uh, are just wondering whether they should be taking something, it's actually a really good lay resource um, for people who just have questions about supplements. Brian, thank you very much for being here. No, thank you very much. And we've linked to Dr. Brian Chung and Evidence-Based Fitness on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Google+, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People.
Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.